KFI AM uh, 640, uh, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Bill Handel here on a very cold Monday, February 20th. We've got another cold snap this entire week. Uh, we're covering some stories that are trending. President Biden, a surprise visit to Kiev. I'll cover that next uh, segment. Uh, the auxiliary bishop uh, here in Los Angeles, David O'Connell, was shot and killed in Hacienda Heights. Good God. Just uh, mowed down. The other big story is, and this is obviously covered internationally, is uh, Jimmy Carter at 98 years of age has left the hospital and has gone home voluntarily to uh, enter hospice care. He's basically going to die at home. And he's surrounded by family and he's a religious guy. And so uh, he's pretty comfortable with it. And Rosalind is very comfortable with it. I mean, they're uh, this is a man who has lived, a, I would say, a pretty full, well-lived life as a former president of the United States. And further, the life he had after his presidency. He is the longest-lived president post-presidency, longest-lived post-president, I guess, uh, that we've had in the history of the United States. Up to this point, the longest was uh, actually Herbert Hoover. And uh, Jimmy Carter beat him by more than a decade 42 years after his presidency. And he left an extraordinary legacy, not as president. He really had one big win as president, and it was a big one, and that was the Camp David Accord, 1978, where he put together uh, Egypt and Israel, Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister of Israel, Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt, and in 12 days at Camp David, uh, a peace uh, negotiation was hammered out because of Jimmy Carter. And he won the Nobel Prize for that, as he well should have. And an interesting story about Menachem Begin, okay? A little bit of history, really quickly. Uh, and that is Menachem Begin was actually considered an out-and-out terrorist. I mean, he was involved in the Irgun at the start of uh, Israel and literally walked around or and blew up uh, British... Uh, facilities, and their headquarters. Incidentally, uh, in honor of Menachem Begin, do you know that virtually every freeway in Southern California is named after him? You've seen those signs, uh, Begin Freeway? What, Michelle? You were waiting all morning to make that joke. Uh, Yeah, I was. I love that joke. Uh, and uh, the Camp David Accords. Here's another little bit of history, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Camp David was uh, renamed by Dwight Eisenhower after his grandson, uh, David Eisenhower. It was FDR who originally named Camp David, and it was called Shangri-La. Okay, you ever get asked that on Jeopardy? You've got it. Anyways, back to Jimmy Carter. Uh, this extraordinary man who had a, a pretty miserable presidency. He's not going to go down as one of the better presidents. Uh, he lost uh, a second term to Ronald Reagan in a landslide. I mean, it was slaughtered in the vote. And he had the uh, the Iranian uh, rescue attempt of uh, the, I think, 144, uh, the hostages that were held. And that ended miserably with the death of a lot of service people. Two helicopters uh, went down. Uh, but I'll tell you what he did, which is so extraordinary, is he entered a life of public service, but I mean serious public service. Habitat for Humanity, uh, the, Ca the Carter Center, 
which uh, went around the world and monitored elections. Uh, I mean, just a revered man. You know, in his 90s, he was still hammering nails and building uh, building houses for Habitat for Humanity. I mean, he was the real thing. And uh, far more than any other president. I mean, look at Gerald Ford. He played golf in Palm Springs. His entire post-presidency. Ronald Reagan uh, gave speeches at $200,000 a pop. Bill Clinton still gives speeches at $250,000 a pop. And uh, uh, then you have Barack Obama left the presidency very young. And uh, he is just having a great old time giving speeches at two fifty dollars a pop. Just cut a deal with Netflix for a zillion dollars as a producer. Is he a stand-up comedian who has a Netflix special? No, I don't think so. Uh, and here is Jimmy Carter, who devoted his life to public service. He was a Sunday school teacher for 40 years, deeply religious. I mean, really an extraordinary man. Uh, and uh, as I said, uh, his presidency is not going to go down well. Uh, not considered one of the better presidents. Former peanut farmer, he was a businessman who became governor of Georgia. And uh, he went to the Naval Academy. Became uh, worked on uh, submarines, early nuclear submarines, under the uh, father of the submarine fleet, Admiral Rickover, who created uh, the first uh, atomic submarines the United States had, and he was right there. And then he became a pretty wealthy peanut farmer and uh, then went into politics and then worked his way up to uh, the presidency. Uh, pretty impressive, very unusual life. Anyway, he is entering uh, hospice care. Interestingly enough, we're already giving him eucalades. Uh, uh, accolades. Ac- there you go. Accolades. Uh, thank you very much, Michelle. Ah, the word master. Here I am. And it's almost as if he had died already uh, that we're talking about him. And when he does, uh, it's um, going to be another round for sure. Accolades. Write that down. Accolades. Joe Biden, our president, has made a surprise visit to Kiev, and that is no small deal. Obviously, a surprise visit. They, the White House is not going to announce it for obvious security reasons. And this is not the first time a president has gone into a war zone. Uh, you had, uh, I think the most memorable is uh, President George W. Bush that would fly into the Gulf region And the way, uh, I've always found this fascinating, Air Force One literally becomes a dive bomber and uh, is up at 30,000 feet and then just goes almost straight down and then lands uh, because of the fear of anti-aircraft weaponry. I'm assuming much the same happened here. And also the secrecy is so extraordinary. And Now, he didn't fly in. Uh, He took a train in from Poland. That's what's a little unusual here, and it's a nine-hour train trip. And uh, nine hours on a train is just great, joyful fun. I don't know if you've ever been on a train, but i got to tell you, and you pay for it too, which is what amazes me. So uh, he goes in to Kiev, meets with Zelensky, offers uh, yet another uh, half a billion dollars, or is it $200 million of aid, and weaponry, uh, long-distance artillery, and uh, ammunition, uh, in addition to Abrams Bank uh, tanks, which is our top-line tanks. 
There was some controversy there because the training period for the drivers of those tanks, operators, are pretty extensive, and they're very hard to maintain. And they run on jet fuel because they're effectively jet engines that power those things. So we caved and uh, went ahead and supplied those tanks. And then you have Germany and France and Belgium also supplying tanks and equipment and ammunition. And he was there to show solidarity because in four days, it's going to be one year from, uh, well, one year uh, of the anniversary uh, since Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, Russia miscalculated. We've said that over and over again. The president has said that over and over again. If you remember early on in the war, uh, what Putin thought was going to happen uh, is uh, just, uh, again, uh, what happened in Crimea, where it was a matter of days, and he took it over and annexed it and became part of Russia. Big mistake with Ukraine. Big mistake. Uh, Ukraine uh, decided they're going to fight back. Uh, they're not going to let themselves be taken over. Uh, Putin has wanted the parts of Ukraine or the entire country to be part of Russia as it was during the Soviet era. Matter of fact, it was known as the Ukraine. Uh, the Donbass region, a little bit of history. Remember Nikita Khrushchev? Uh, he came from the Donbass. Uh, was a mining engineer, actually. And then uh, was the mayor of Moscow and built the subway. Extraordinary. You have to watch Jeopardy to get those questions answered. And so the president and other world leaders have already been there. Uh, Macron has been there. You've got, I think, um, uh, England, the prime minister, uh, was there. And they're just uh, lining up to help Ukraine. In the meantime, uh, what Zelensky used uh, that meeting for, as he's used every single meeting and every single uh, attempt to speak to the Western world via video or in person or going to countries and uh, giving speeches, same thing, over and over again. We need your weaponry. Uh, he is fine with foreign soldiers not hitting Ukrainian soil. He says, we can do it ourselves, but we need the equipment. Without Western help, we are done. This war is over. And we found out a few things about uh, the Russians. Ill-equipped, ill-trained, uh, they're actually taking prisoners out of their prisons across Russia and throwing them into the battlefield. Their fodder, their cannon fodder. And no one expected that to happen. So at this point, no boots on the ground from any Western country. Uh, that's a line in the sand that Putin has said, once that happens, uh, there will be severe consequences and intimidated that there will be nuclear war. Now, tactical nuclear weapons not the kind of uh, nuclear weapons that we think of wiping out entire cities. Uh, I don't think even Putin is crazy enough to make the world a parking lot. But tactical nuclear weapons, small nuclear weapons that can take out uh, a couple of miles uh, or uh, even half a mile and take out buildings and take out troops. But then that raises the stakes very, very high, because then what does the Western world do with that? But keep in mind, the line in the sand has been crossed several times. 
If you remember when Putin first crossed over the border and there was discussion about the Western world supplying Ukraine, that's a line in the sand, he said. You can't cross that. If you supply Ukraine with weaponry, we will retaliate with the strongest force we can. Well, in his world, retaliation is just bombing uh, or fighting, uh, sending artillery uh, artillery rounds into more of uh, the civilian areas. And what he has done successfully, on the ground, He's uh, there's... Uh, almost no success for Russia because as I said, they don't have the equipment. Uh, they don't have uh, enough training. They don't have leadership. Uh, but what they do have is they have high range artillery and they have aircraft and they have drones that they've gotten from Iran after they ran out of theirs. And they're going after the infrastructure, particularly power plants. Every single power plant in Ukraine has been hit. Every single one. And they're scrambling to fix them. Ukraine is basically in the dark. Even though equipment is being brought in. Do you know there are 800,000 generators that have been brought into that country to generate power for a, a small apartment building? Uh, or a block for a, a few hours, and they share it with the other block. Then it moves over. So people, if they're lucky, are getting four hours of electricity a day. Uh, many, many do not. They're on. Uh, they're using candlelight. Uh, they're using wood stoves that are being manufactured, and it's very, very rough. It is. So uh, the Western world loading up the equipment, and it's the line in the sand that's going to be ignored again. The next line in the sand is going to be fighter jets, where the United States is being asked for advanced fighters. And if that's the case, there's another line in the sand. In the meantime, Joe Biden is there, goes back to Poland, and is uh, going to show the world that uh, we are part of the Western organized world to fight uh, this Putin's war. That's it. Putin's war where war crimes are occurring day after day. But if you look at Putin and you look at the photos of entire uh, apartment blocks, it's all, they're all military targets, aren't they? Let's go into some cool space news uh, with Rod Pyle. I haven't done that in a while, and there is some seriously great, good space news. Good morning, Rod. Good morning, Bill. How good. are you? I am pretty good. And I want to mention that at the end of the next segment... We are giving away five pairs of tickets to a terrific event where uh, you will, I think they're bringing in the alien from Roswell, if you remember. He will be signing autographs, and you don't want to miss that. That's right. And you'll be there right next to him, won't you, Ryan? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interviewing him for uh, Rod's podcast this week. Of course. In, yeah, this week in space, now on the iHeartRadio app. All right. Uh, let's go right into it. Uh, the asteroid, all those movies about asteroids hitting Earth. We have one coming up in 2029. We have an asteroid and it's going to hit. Well, it's going to almost kind of sort of maybe uh, probably not hit Earth. Uh, let's dive into that. Yeah, so this is one of the potentially scary ones. It's called Apophis and it was found in 2004. 
And the first uh, bit of tracking they did, and, and of course, the minute you spot one of these things that's large, this one's about a fifth of a mile across or about the diameter of the height of the Empire State Building, so it's an attention getter. You start doing your calculations. They said, eh, this could, you know, this is slinging around the inner solar system. This could whack into the Earth. That's not a good thing. Further observations and math say that it won't, but it will pass about 20,000 miles from Earth, which is well within lunar orbit and actually below our highest satellites. So that's a pretty close shave. So we're good as long as nothing affects its orbit. There is a very small chance that that 2029 pass would maybe with gravitational tug from Earth could nudge it towards Earth for 2036, but NASA thinks we've got at least 100 years where we have to worry about it. But we do have to worry about these things. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm assuming by then we're going to have the technology technology to sort of move it over a bit. I know if you move it over like half an inch, way, way out there, right. you, you miss the Earth by a long shot. But as far as the size is concerned, bigger than the Empire State Building, is that one of those things that effectively becomes uh, the, uh, di the extinct dinosaur level of uh, a collision? No, the dinosaur killer Chicxulub asteroid was about six to six and a half uh, miles across, they think. So this is substantially smaller, but you're still talking kind of an interesting coincidence. The crater this could make might be about the size of the one in Arizona, meteor crater. So that's, you know, about maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred megatons, which is the biggest bomb the Russians ever set off, which is the largest in history. It was 25 megatons. So you can imagine what that's like. So it could take out a good chunk of a city like Los Angeles and cause environmental and injury effects for 10, 15 miles in diameter. So it's something you want to take seriously. And there's it, this is one of the larger ones, but, you know, it's a real shooting gallery out there. There's a lot of rocks slinging around. So it's good that we did the DART mission last year, which is the double asteroid redirection test you're talking about. That was essentially running something about the size and mass of a golf cart into a 500-foot uh, asteroid. And it actually was more effective than they expected. It changed its, its orbital period significantly. So as you point out, if you hit them far enough out by simple geometry, you can nudge them off course. But we got a lot more exploration to do. We also have to get some more telescopes up in orbit so we can spot these things further out because they surprise us way too yeah. often. Yeah, I'm assuming most of them have. The reason there's so few is most of them have already hit the Earth when uh, the Earth was uh, forming. that It's like the moon, okay? You don't see many asteroids hitting moons anymore, hitting the moon anymore. Right. Well, there's a, yeah, there was a time billions of years ago called the heavy bombardment where a lot of that stuff got scooped up. Not just the Earth and the Moon, but all the inner planets <clears throat> experienced a lot of <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of bombardment. But uh, there's still a lot of crud out there. So, like I said, we've got to find it. And the ones that are hard to spot are the ones that are orbiting in near the sun because of the glare. Yeah. So you really need space telescopes to spot those. Yeah, talking about the crud out there, and I've been anticipating this forever. The kind of junk that's left out in space. I mean, you've got to start running into it at some point. It's like a traffic jam out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and worse than that, we've added to it. So this is the stuff you know we're talking about right now, way out there, but in low Earth orbit, where we tend to do our business with the space station and orbital missions and satellites and Starlink and all that kind of stuff. That's really become a mess because there's so much junk up there, most of which we put up there. I mean, some of it's old ice and rock from long ago. But we've got tumbling rocket stages. There's a number of very large, like 30-foot-tall Russian rocket stages from back in the space race era. Uh, exploded satellites, all kinds of things. In fact, in the last uh, six weeks or so, we had 
one near miss and, and one satellite that did break up. And every time this happens, if it creates a lot of uh, detritus or like when the Indians or the Chinese or the Russians do one of these ASAT tests, there's always this concern mm. that that's going to be just enough to cause the Kessler syndrome, which is what we saw in that movie Gravity, where it just becomes this kind of spontaneous cascading effect. Everything runs into everything, and now you just can't put stuff in orbit. Anymore. Isn't all the space junk going in the same direction, or do they pass each other in the night? Uh, a lot of it goes in the same direction. A lot of them pass in the night. What's scary about this is these speeds. So a couple of decades ago, there was a space shuttle in orbit, and a flake of paint smaller than a dime almost took out the front window. Now, it's a multi-layer front window, so they were safe. But even when you have something that small traveling at a tangent to you at 17,000 miles an hour, it can do significant damage because it carries a lot of energy. So the smallest stuff can have these huge impacts. Mm, that's lovely. And people, and people line <laughs> oh. up uh, to be astronauts. Fair enough. Balloons, wayward balloons, shoot downs, balloons from Chuck E. Cheese's birthday parties <laughs> that are way up in the air. Big news. They've been going on for a long time. And so tell us a little bit about the technology and balloons and then just a, a political word about what's uh, happening with the Chinese, how it's, uh, as they say, just a weather balloon. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. We've just in the last few years really started weaving Air Force and, and DOD have started looking more closely at these UFO slash UAP and identified aerial phenomenon reports that had kind of been piling up for years. And the military looked at them and kind of said, eh, we're not that interested. Well, now under congressional order, they are more interested. And isn't it interesting that this kind of coincides with this, this spate of balloons that's been sighted over the U.S.? So, of course, the first one is that big Russian, uh, excuse me, Chinese balloon, about 200 feet tall, big instrument rack, you know, depending on which news report you see. It's the size of three school buses, 20 school buses. I think it was about three. Don't know what it was doing yet. But this stuff's been floating around for a while. And so the Air Force started looking back and said, you know, we really, NORAD doesn't look for that kind of stuff. We look for missiles. We look for satellites. We look for uh, incursions of bombers and fighter planes. But at the altitude these things were flying, between, say, 40 and 70,000 feet, and their size, we kind of tuned them out. So they're retuning their gear and finding that there's a lot of stuff. Looks like there's about 1,600 weather balloons being launched any given day around the world. So some of these are probably innocent incursions where things are just sort of lazily flying over the U.S. Some of them appear to be, of the more recent ones, like amateur radio groups that have repeaters up there and balloons that are just a few feet across. But then you've got these enormous ones that are apparently from the Chinese. So the head-scratcher for a lot of us is, you know, the Chinese have a lot of really good satellites running around way up high. What is it that that balloon's looking for and why is it here? You're asking me the question because I'll be more than happy to answer it. I would. You're the smartest guy I know. Of oh, course. yeah, absolutely. Here it is. Satellite photos are only there for a few minutes at a time and they can't hover over uh, any given area. I mean, those that are geosynchronous uh, satellites right. are up 22,000 feet in the air and miles, you know, miles. Uh, miles. That's what I meant. And uh, that's uh, a little difficult to get the lens uh, to do a good job in reading license plates. Uh, so that's one. And the other one is, as you said, you know, it's a balloon. Who looks at a balloon? It's just uh, a balloon that's flying around. And uh, well, does, that, I don't even know if those show up on radar. Well, it is, but it's so freaking large. You know, my thought was, okay, either this is something looking for low altitude radio traffic or 
you know how we have these reports coming in from UFOs or spoofing the carrier, coming at the carrier battle groups. Well, why are UFOs so interested in U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups when our aircraft carriers can't even fly, right? So there's a lot of thought that what we're seeing out there when these UFO reports come online are possibly Russian and or Chinese drone swarms, which are deliberately creating these weird radio signatures to get the fleet to light them up with radar that way they can see what our capabilities are and be that much better prepared if we ever go to war yeah I, so this could be the same kind of thing yeah i mean uh, you know do we do it they do it and it, uh, it's commu- yeah. you know and it's a communications uh, surveillance satellite and we they they pick most of the, most of it up off the coast of south carolina right uh, but I, you know balloons when i when i think of balloons and high end balloons it's those balloons that went up in the 50s uh, where you had that pod uh, and the astronaut, the first astronauts were in balloons. And you have that mile-long high balloon that went up to 100,000 feet, for example. Uh, are they still using balloons for anything like that? Yeah. In fact, a lot of them get used over the Arctic and Antarctic where they're doing uh, high-altitude stuff if they want radio silence and so forth. But they, they do send them up because it's a lot cheaper than flying a payload on a rocket into orbit. So when you can get significant altitude with a balloon, you're way, way ahead financially. Okay, fair enough. Uh, now, uh, let's talk about AlienCon. Okay. Uh, yeah, Pasadena, March 4th and 5th, and you're going to be there. And before we leave, we're going to give away five pairs of weekend passes, the entire weekend pass to the first five callers. All right, so, uh, Rod, tell me about AlienCon. AlienCon, March 4th and 5th at the Pasadena Convention Center. You're going to see stars of ancient aliens, uh, stars from William Shatner's Unexplained, various authors. Eric Von Donneken's going to be there, Chariots of the Gods guy, George Knapp from Coast to Coast, and me in some capacity. I mean, and George, passes, George Nury. No, Knapp. George Knapp. Oh, not yeah. our George. Yep, the weekend guy. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. You've really yeah. gone first class. The weekend <laughs> guy. Good for you. Oh, well. Hey, you know, I would be taking a step up to be the weekend guy on KFI, but that's a different story. Um, And these day passes are significantly expensive and they don't have many left. So it's a really good. These aren't like $30 tickets you're giving away. I think their retail is over a thousand bucks or something. Oh, seriously. So I have two panels. One is the unexplained mysteries of the universe. Another is ancient aliens leaving planet Earth. And I'm kind of the resident skeptic which is not, you know, I mean, there are smarter people than me that believe in this stuff wholeheartedly, but I'm kind of there as I do when I'm on the okay. ancient aliens or unexplained shows, I'm kind of given the other perspective and the, well, you know, are we really that interesting that somebody's going to come, you know, bajillion miles to come yeah. see us? Yeah. I'm always... And if so, you know, there's been talk about these balloons, maybe being UFOs. Of course. If you're crossing 10 light years. Are you really going to be dumb enough to be shot down by a fighter jet with a skyrocket? Yeah. But I digress. Yeah. And then I'm giving a solo talk on the renaissance of space technology in the new space age. Oh, that and sounds I good. I hope to see you there, Bill. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Maybe, you know what? I got to tell you, I'm really interested in that stuff. So uh, two quick questions. And that is how far into aliens, you know, Martian anal probes, is this thing going to go? (laughs) I mean, is it crossing the line from science into ridiculous? Well, I've never been to one of these, tell you the truth. So I don't know. I've been to Star Trek conferences. I've been to Star Wars conferences, always just as an observer. You know, 
there's a range or broad gamut of people. What fascinates me is I go to a lot of space conferences, not UFO conferences, but like space science, space tech conferences. For every one person that goes to those, there's probably about 10,000 that go to these. So there is a real interest in the public. There's a real will to believe in this stuff. You know, the yeah. truth is out there and all that. So, I mean, it's an incredibly vibrant movement. And it it's it's not something all I've right. long subscribed to, let but me, I'll let, be there. All right, let me cut you off because five pairs of weekend passes to Alien Con. We're going to give away to the first five callers, 800-520-1534. Go for it. Rod, your podcast this week in space on the iHeartRadio app and pilebooks.com, P-Y-L-E, books.com. And you're going to be there at uh, Martian, Able, uh, Martian Anal Probe Land, uh, March. Gene Probe, no yes. doubt. Okay, take care, Rod. Thank you. There is a lawsuit going on, and my goodness, it's a big one to say the least. Uh, Nohemi Gonzalez uh, was uh, one of 130 people killed by terrorists during all these shooting rampages uh, in Paris in 2015. Uh, she was a senior at Cal State Long Beach. And she was at a specific bistro, and she was shot with 19 others. She was with friends, and the Islamic State would claim responsibility for the attack. Okay. Uh, there is a whole story about her. Uh, worked very hard to get into college. The first person in her family to go to college worked. I mean, just the American success story. So... Uh, her mother was contacted by an Israeli law center that specializes in suing companies that aid terrorists. And uh, she was asked, uh, are you interested in launching a lawsuit? And okay. Uh, she says, yes. Interesting. Uh, this is a very interesting law center. It's a nonprofit and it spent years suing tech companies for hosting propaganda and recruitment messages uh, from terrorists and militant organizations. And for the most part, uh, they've lost virtually every case. So in 2017, the Gonzalez family and the lawyers filed their case, arguing that Google, uh, that the YouTube site owned by uh, Google, the video site broke U.S. Anti-Terrorism Act by promoting Islamic State propaganda with its uh, recommendation algorithms. Now, this gets interesting. Google says the case, of course, is without merit because the law protects Internet companies from liability, and it does. And the lower court, of course, sided with Google. Family appealed. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case in October. Now, that is a big case because for nearly 30 years, Section 230... Uh, has protected internet companies from being liable. This is 230 of the U.S. Code. Uh, because they're not liable for content posted by their users. And the advocates of 230 argue the law is vital to a free and open internet. Users freely post what they want. The internet provider simply posts up what people say. You can't, uh, there's no way we can censor it, nor should we censor it. Critics of the law says it gives uh, tech companies uh, a pass to shirk responsibility or engage in unfair censorship. Just to give you an idea of how important this is, 79 amicus briefs were filed 
outside companies, trade organizations, politicians, nonprofits have all filed amicus briefs. They're not part of it, but they file briefs to try to influence the court. A spokesperson for Google says the court's decision, if it goes against Google, could radically alter the way that America uses the Internet. And changing Section 230 could make it difficult for companies to use algorithms to recommend any content. For example, songs on Spotify, uh, Spotify items from small businesses uh, like Etsy, uh, we, these e-commerce platforms, they'll be able to uh, be challenged on any one of those. Now, uh, the Gonzalez family, uh, their argument and others uh, focus on the recommendation algorithms uh, by YouTube, chooses what videos certain users see on the site, and have recommended, based on their algorithms, certain Islamic State videos, and goes way beyond the bounds of 230, because it is promoting or allowed to be promoted terrorism and is in violation of the terrorism laws of the United States. And they're arguing, and when 230 was written 30 years ago, uh, the Internet was not the Internet it is today. It's gone way past that. And we have to look look at it with fresh eyes. And we can't let terrorism, it's just real easy. Terrorism is terrorism. It's not that hard to figure out. You know, unless Etsy is uh, selling atomic weapons, uh, it's not all that hard. We'll see what the court has to say on this one. Yee, what a case that one's going to be. Ah, political correctness. I want to share another political correctness story with you. And uh, this is uh, right after a story that broke over the weekend. And uh, school districts all over the country are rewriting uh, books. Publishers are rewriting books for kids to be gender friendly or gender neutral and more inclusive and literally changing the books. Okay, not the basic story, but changing the books, you know, for one, you know, Huckleberry Finn with N. Uh, Jim, right? Uh, which you can't use anymore. And I find that ludicrous, as offensive as that word is. Uh, you put an asterisk there and a footnote saying this is, of course, totally offensive day, can't be used, and put it in context. Can't do that. That's impossible to do, even within historical context. just doesn't exist. Well, here's something new. Uh, this is in Culver City. And Culver City has its own school district. And so uh, there was a school board meeting, and uh, the parents were screaming about this uh, racial equity initiative uh, the high school should reinstate honors English classes. What do you mean reinstate them? They were eliminated. Why? Because they didn't enroll enough black and Latino students. So at Culver City High earlier this year, they replaced the honor classes with uniform courses. Same course. And the officials are saying that this will ensure students of all races receive an equal Rigorous education. Now, this gets interesting because legally, this is a mess regarding uh, discrimination, regarding fairness, regarding regarding equal access to education. And uh, this parental pushback saying, wait a minute, you got to go back to honors classes. Uh, it's uh, same place uh, all over the country, Wisconsin, Rhode Island, uh, other places in California. 
that over the last year is responding to schools that just strip away these honors classes. So why are they stripping away these honors classes? Well, here's the argument. And it's very close to Brown versus Board of Education, the first desegregation uh, decision issued by the Supreme Court in 1954. And it's students who don't take those classes from an early age start to see themselves in a different tier, think they're not capable of enrolling in AP classes that help with college admissions. Black and Latino students are underrepresented in AP classes. Uh, And they are. Now, here's the legal argument, even though on its face you would say, well, come on, all right, they don't make the grade, it's uh, equal, everybody tests the same, you either make it or you don't make it, congratulations. Here's the argument, the stigma of not being in those AP classes with other kids alone makes you feel terrible. Brown versus Board of Education, the first desegregation course, it overturns something called separate but equal, the Plessy case. And separate but equal said as long as black and white students get effectively the same education, it is legal to uh, separate them. And the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, wrote this and said just the separation itself stigmatizes those kids. Therefore, it is illegal, even if it were the same education, which, of course, it wasn't because it was crazy. Black students were, well, come on, they were, you know, how they were treated. Uh, So that is the argument. Okay, start of this school year, freshmen and sophomores in Culver City have only been able to select one level of English class. There's no AP classes, and it's called college prep. That's because everybody goes to college. That's the other thing uh, about America, is that everybody goes to college. Nobody doesn't make it or shouldn't have the ability to go to college. Right, No such thing as not everybody going to college. We're the only country in the world that does that, by the way. When you talk about other countries in the world, uh, it's sort of an elitism. And, uh, you know, a certain percentage go to college and a certain percentage don't. Medical school, for example. Everybody should be able to get into medical school. You want to be a doctor and you have a 2.2 GPA and you score 54 on the MCATs, you're getting into medical school. It's not fair if you don't. Because otherwise, I mean, they're going to be doctors. You're not. Look at the stigma there. Maybe I'm a little hyperbolic here, but um, you know what? Not a whole lot. So Culver City English teachers presented data showing that Latino students, which make up 13% of the 12th grade advanced placement English, uh, they have 37% of the student body. Not very many. Asian students were 34% of the advanced class. They only had 10%. Of the student body. The only one that was sort of fair uh, were the black students. Uh, They were 14% in the AP English classes, and they had 15% of the student body. So there was even Stephen. But the rest of it, ridiculously unfair. And incidentally, the uh, number of Latino dropouts at LA Unified is astronomical. So that means... We should not allow dropouts because the stigma itself of dropping out of school uh, is such that you'll never feel the same as high school graduates. Therefore, there should be no dropouts allowed. And if you do drop out, you still get your high school diploma. By the way, I'm not going very far over the edge here anyway. So, um, for example, one student uh, was asked, 
How does this work? Well, she talked about a unit on research. And her teacher gathered all this reference sources and said, write a paper on whether graffiti is art or vandalism. And we'll review everything together. The English honor student chose their own topics and did research independently. And why is that? It's more difficult. And because it's an honors course. So what is happening is a lot of districts are saying, well, okay, we've gone a little bit too far in saying that we're all the same and no one can be better, get better grades, have better access to college. It's not just the same. It's just not. And then immediately, I always tell the story of uh, my girls, when they were small, went to a birthday party. It was a bowling birthday party. And every single kid got a the world's best bowler trophy. Because there's no such thing as a kid bowling better than the other kid. Because you don't want to make them feel bad. Hmm. Okay. All right. Take care, everybody. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. 